Hello and welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox. Please excuse my cold, which is making me quite throaty, but it's nice to be back presenting the second episode of this new season of the podcast. Before we get into what this episode is focusing on, I did want to share a quick review, a mini review of a new documentary, uh, Getting It Back, the story of Samande, which is a music film. And uh, it's appropriate to be sort of sharing a little bit of thought on a documentary because today's main film under discussion uh, shortly is a documentary as well. But I wanted to just mention having seen the, the, the Samande documentary because it's out this week. Samande were a British funk band in the 70s who were kind of like a lot of bands, um, kind of in terms of black British bands and bands led by, you know, sort of the Windrush generation and uh, and then their families uh, were kind of like never really taken seriously, misunderstood, misrepresented or mispromoted uh, in their time. But they created a series of songs, particularly which became foundational to hip-hop and the film tells the story of the kind of the breaks that they created and their own story as human beings and and as a band it's a it's a really solid doc it's slick it's got some great talking heads it's a really it's a really fun film it's a really sad film the the band themselves are really interesting people um the footage of them is fantastic the archive material is great but it's but it's really kind of interesting in terms of how this kind of British band became so synonymous with with particular types of of hip-hop sound in the late 80s and early 90s and there's a really lovely touch where they they go over the sort of the modern people who've been influenced by the band and sort of share on the screen when they go into them which is a really lovely touch and to sort of show the kind of the spread and the continuing sort of spread of their legacy which is really lovely. The film is actually the first music film I've seen in a while since uh, finishing my book, which is out um, in May, uh, May the 30th, available from all good booksellers. I have sort of taken a break from watching music films, um, but I thought that it was about time to get back into it um, ahead of the release, just to kind of to familiarise myself with some of the films that have been released in, in that window since I finished the book and the book coming out. And there's obviously, because it's such a, kind of popular form at the moment there are loads and loads to catch up on um and uh, so i thought this would be a good place to start because it's a film that i've been sort of seeing sort of around at festivals and sort of for a while and the bfi are releasing it so that's really nice uh, they're also releasing my book which is also really nice um i have not been paid for this advertisement um but i thought it'd be a nice kind of ease back in because the film looked like it was going to be a very kind of solid um uh, music doc which is which is exactly what it is um, but yeah, it's a really, it's a really good movie and it's on the BFI player and they sort of released it. I think they, it had a cinema release, a kind of short cinema release, but it's certainly, uh, on streaming platforms now and well worth checking out. And it's been nice actually to, to kind of get back into watching music films. Uh, again, this week I've watched quite a lot, actually, again, all through the, the BFI player because they've, um, they've got quite a few on there that they've released and sort of worked on, which is, which is really nice, but. Um, if you want to hear more about those, then maybe check out this month's newsletter, which drops tomorrow, March the 1st, um, where I do talk about a bit about that. Um, and that's a good reason for you to subscribe for just £2.50 a month uh, to our newsletter. And uh, earlier this week, there was a bonus on Berlinale, where I talked to my friend and collaborator, 
Justin John Doherty, who was there and sort of gave us a little reportage from, from the festival, which was lovely. So yeah, check that out as well if you are a subscriber um, or if you become a subscriber. So yeah, let's get into the episode without further ado. I'm putting this episode out on February the 29th and I thought that would be apt because it's not your standard episode in the set. I mean, it's, just, it's a good conversation. It's a really great conversation with the guest. I thought I uh, really, really love talking to them, but it's about a film that's not out and is not available to see. Um, hopefully that will not be the case for too much longer and we talk during the conversation about it. But essentially, I'm talking today with the academic, Dr. Naruman Masumi, uh, who goes by the name of Naz, and that's how I, I, I introduced myself to him on the, on the conversation. And he has made a film called Pouring Water on Troubled Oil, which is a incredible documentary about Dylan Thomas visiting Iran uh, on behalf of the Anglo-Iranian oil company to sort of write a script for a promotional corporate film um, to be sort of shared back home in terms of the work that the, the company was doing in Iran. And um, the visit does not go as anyone hopes, really, in really kind of interesting ways. And and Naraman's film is a kind of short documentary narrated by Michael Sheen that explores Thomas's visit um, and also the kind of the larger project of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which became BP, um, nationalization of oil in Iran and sort of, you know, the uprisings against sort of English involvement in the country. It's an amazing piece of archive um, curation and formal dexterity in terms of the way it's presented. It's a really wonderful film and a friend has shared a link to it, uh, which I sort of mentioned in the conversation and mentioned that, and they said that there was, you know, that the no festivals have picked up this film, which made me really angry. And when I saw the film, I thought I'd love to talk to, to Naz about this. And thankfully he came on the podcast and we had a really, really good conversation about it. So I will endeavor to keep you up to date and informed of when the film is available to view and and as Naz mentions he's planning screenings um uh later on in, two, in 2024 but I just felt that it was really important to talk to him about this film because one of the one of the things that Dario and I have talked about a lot over the years uh both on the podcast and off is like what are we here to do um we're not really here to talk about the things that everyone else is talking about we don't really we're not really interested in that one of the things we want to do is use whatever platform we have, which is not insubstantial in terms of, you know, the film community in the UK and beyond to draw attention to work that deserves attention that is not getting it, you know, sort of highlighting filmmakers and films where we can to say, look over here, listen over here. There's something really interesting going on. And we believe that if you're listening to our podcast, then you want to know about that kind of work as well. So this film felt like an opportunity to be able to sit with a filmmaker and talk about their work. And even though that film is not readily available at present, the conversation itself, I think, has lots to offer in terms of documentary filmmaking, archive practice, the current kind of focus on decolonization, and just so much other stuff. And it was just a real pleasure to talk to Naz, had a really, really nice time. And yeah, as is evident, um, from the fact that we've dedicated an episode to it, I really love this movie. Uh, and I hope, really, really hope that it's available to see more widely soon. Um, 
So without further ado, this is me talking to Dr. Naraman Masumi from Bristol University about his incredible documentary, Pouring Water on Troubled Oil. Hello, Naz. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. No, thank you for inviting me. I um, feel very honoured to be on this particular podcast. <laughs> thank you. So, yeah, I I was so uh, a friend, I think a mutual friend, Rod Stoneman, shared a link to your to your film, and after I told him that I'd, I'd been to the National Library in Aberystwyth and seen their Dylan Thomas in New York exhibition um, about his yeah his kind of his his time rehearsing and putting together under Milkwood and then and then and then his death. So Rod was like, "Oh, you might like this." Um, and uh, yeah, and I I just thought it was such I just think it's such a wonderful film. Like I really really love it. And rewatching it last night, I was like, "This is this is a really." really interesting and kind of fascinating piece of work um so yeah i'm really excited to talk to you about it well that um yeah i really appreciate that and I'll, um, i hope that um yeah lots of people agree with you or hear hear this podcast and agree with you because yeah i'd like to find a an audience for it um yeah it took a lot of work um mm. much longer than i expected to make the film from when I first started researching it. Well, let's start there, then, because I think um, it's an it's it's such a fascinating story um, in terms of like an event that happened. What was? How did you learn about Dylan Thomas's kind of visit to Iran in the first place? Yeah, so a friend when I was working at the BBC before I went into academia told me about it, and I was kind of fascinated by the idea of how did Dylan Thomas end up in Iran. Uh, and the more I looked into it, the more interesting it got, really. Um, so, you know, I sort of discovered that he'd, you know, written about it in his letters. And then I discovered that um, the reason he was there was because he'd been assigned to write a script for the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which later became BP, British Petroleum. Um, and, you know... What really struck me was that he was there in 1951, just as the nationalisation movement was growing and Iran nationalised the Anglo-Iranian oil company. So um, the idea of him being um, here, you know, in Iran in that particular time just struck me as really fascinating. And so I looked into it more and yeah, that, that involved going into the BP archive and looking at the um, the kind of the history there and discovering and digging more and uh, yeah the more I looked into it the more un unraveled really so yeah it was you know it was kind of odd to think that Dylan Thomas this person that we might associate with of course what a really distinctive writer but also associated with perhaps quite colorful lifestyle of um, drinking and so on would be chosen as the person to write a propaganda film in about a Muslim country in which Britain was embroiled in 
you know, in an oil crisis with. So, yeah, that found I found that quite odd and interesting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. The film is entirely constructed from archive um, in terms of the, the, the visual material. Um, what was your experience when you first encountered the sort of the material that was in the archive? And did you say that the, the B, it was the BB archive predominantly? So what was that experience like of working with them? So... In a way, I, I suppose the the film is an is made from archive in every sense. You know, the Dylan Thomas letters form the voiceover, as well as some other material that I've taken from archives, and then the film visuals are from archives. Um, um, so when I when you're saying when I encountered the archive, do you mean the BP photographic? I think so. Yeah, because is that is that the, the the majority of the archive that you use? Yeah. So. The way I approached the film initially was how I'm how am I going to make this film? And I did some there were very various forms of this film, but I began during COVID to um, put images together with the voiceover as a way of as a creative sort of tool, so almost making a sort of storyboard. Mm. But I immediately realised that this is the way I wanted to make the film. I wanted to use images and uh, and the voiceover. Um, and then, um, because I'd done some research in the BP archive about the film and um, that he was attached to, I discovered there that they had this bit vast photographic archive, which was in some ways untapped. And yeah, as soon as I opened those and looked into them, the whole world opened up for me, basically. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's an extraordinary collection of images. Um, and yeah, could you just talk a little bit about terms of like curating those images because. What's really interesting about the film is you have the narrative of Dylan Thomas's visit, but the construction of the the images seem to tell their own narrative, you know, across time. So, yeah, like they both kind of support the trip, but they're also kind of another story of the kind of the colonial project that was and is, you know, like this this kind of this engagement yeah. in Iran by by the company. Yeah, so Iran wasn't formally colonised by Britain, but, you know, it wasn't informally, it was occupied and there was, um, Britain was there partly through the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. So there was this, so the images themselves in the archives speak a lot to that kind of colonial encounter. Um, yeah, I think it took me, I think what I sort of thought about in Dylan Thomas's writing, I was really struck by the, by his sort of lyrical, sardonic reflections on his journey through Iran, partly personal, psychological, partly political, social commentary. But there were all these gaps, you know, about, you know, did he, did he, you know, encounter oil workers? Did he encounter the kind of rising protest movement? And what I, the way I approached the film was to, in a way, bring the, the archive and BP in dialogue with Dylan Thomas's account and an idea that both expose elements that the other's not, that's missing out. So I kept it quite ambiguous about whether Dylan Thomas really encountered protests or oppositional voices, but liked to think that he did as well. So um, so in a way, what you see in the film is some of the things that he describes are, are, are kind of literally conveyed through some of the photography and some of the images, but there are huge areas where it suggested that he might have encountered something or not, or maybe he missed out. And that's the kind of nature of his journey, I think. 
Similarly, I think there's aspects of what he writes that brings out aspects of the colonial images or the what's underneath, kind of darker, maybe haunting vision of what's underneath that doesn't appear if you just look at the photographic um, evidence, if you like. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's all those all those layers of play. Um, mm. You, uh, the the form of the film is really interesting in terms of there's there's a lot of kind of slow movement across still images, um, you know. So this you know, sort of panning across, but and and that really works to give just a kind of a real sense of the scale of of the project. Um, and then you know there's sort of flourishes like the a little bit in a slideshow, which mm. gives that real sense of sending material home, you know, sort of, mm -hmm. this is what, we, you know, sort of that sort of communication home. Um, so I just wondered if you could just sort of talk a little bit about those formal choices, what informed them and in terms of how you wanted to present the archive material in different ways. And if there were any sort of films or filmmakers in mind that you were thinking of in terms of ways of approaching the form. Yeah, I think, um, that's a really good question. I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's, I, I'll say two things. First of all, there wasn't there was a general approach to the film where of the kind of best way to say is maybe the proto cinematic. So there's this idea that he was the letters that he wrote. I drew extracts from that that I thought were part. Some of them were very personal and not related to Iran, but. I drew the elements that I thought were relevant to what I thought were like notes for a film. So there was a form of adaptation here, but I, I wanted to make the film as if it's coming into emergence, like there is a film in his imagination. And I felt like the kind of still images spoke to that. It's almost like a slide film, but it isn't. Um, and and that also speaks to the idea of a travel log, the illustrated lecture, the kind of colonial ethnographic history of those kind of travels abroad. So I wanted to sort of have a nudge towards that, mm. a nod towards that, sorry. And and so, yeah, there was an element of that's why I wanted to, it to be structured like that. I was also feeling quite responsible for using the type of images that I was using and I wanted a, an element of sort of distancing at points where you feel you're aware of the use of photographic images. So in a way, I was influenced by two types of filmmaking documentary tendencies with the use of photographs. There's the there's the sort of um, 50s, 1960s sort of Alan René, Chris Marker, Agnes Varda photo films um, where there's a kind of modernist use of photos um, where you're, they're presented as as evidence of a particular um, event or action or people, whereas with with a kind of I've also had I suppose the other influence is a more kind of historical documentary convention. Basically, I'm a big fan of Ken Burns, and <laughs> um, I do like the slow images over so. I think I mixed both tendencies. Yeah. I think both offered something of, like I say, there's a sense of which it is a film coming into being. Um, and I think both allowed me to do different things. It allowed me to show these images as images, but also allowed me to uh, allow us to immerse us into the kind of historical 
reality of of that world yeah it's really interesting that you describe it in that way because one of the one of the artifacts that i saw at that exhibition at the national library was a letter from amos bogle to dylan thomas inviting him to a kind of poetry and film symposium you know mm. seeing thomas as someone who has a cinematic way you know in 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 kind of poetry so it's interesting i think that there's mm. that that it, that feels very very present in your film as well yeah that there's there is that kind of cinematic narrative that is in his words yeah and that coming into being i think is a really lovely way of looking yeah and um yeah and, and and actually i think film influenced a lot of his poetry and some people have written about this um you know he was influenced by the kind of expression german expressionist film silent filmmakers and a lot of the kind of gothic imagery in his work comes from that that he was influenced by he you know he was a he was a very you know he read eisenstein he you know he was influenced by montage and he had a kind of political background as well um and that poetry and and film symposium he yeah, there's a kind of interesting discussion with Maya Darren in in that in that symposium where he he kind of gives an indication of some of his ideas around film, although he's a bit reluctant to share them. Um, yeah, despite being an intellectual, he sometimes was resistant to. It was a, he kind of came across as an anti-intellectual in some of the way that he spoke about some things that. As if he didn't, he was a bit embarrassed to be an intellectual or something. And that's what it comes across in the poetry and symposium. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, there's a recording of it, which is really, I, I, I encourage people to listen to it. It's quite interesting. I'll try and track that down. Um, and yeah, interesting, isn't it, in terms of part of the tone of his letters seem to be that kind of. Uh, in the subtext feels to be like, I, I'm not sure why I'm here. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be, you know, like he's kind of trying, he's trying to figure out not just like what's going on in the place, but also why he's been picked to, you know, to, to do this, you know, um, yeah. and what he can, what, what he can do. That's going to, if, you know, to, to kind of, I guess in part to honor what he's been asked to do, although he seems pretty adamant that he's just going to do what, what he wants and what he responds to, which is, I think is also interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think he, one of the ways I was approaching the film is that he has the kind of inner conflict and he mm. is from the demands of his particular Simon, which is a, a propagandist role, um, to what he's seeing and what his political tendencies are. Um, and that was, I was trying to reflect that in the way that the film was made and in the use of sound and and, and so on. Yeah, I mean, he... Despite what people might think, I mean, it's it's it wasn't that strange that he was chosen because he did make um, he did write uh, something like fourteen he did write the scripts for like fourteen documentaries and twenty in total twenty three films. Um, so he did a lot of he did a lot of film work, which is probably less known than obviously his other his other work. But um, and he was he was a broadcaster, radio broadcaster, so he was experienced writer for um, and. Um, but this was the first colonial context he found himself in, mm. and I think he was probably conflicted about that. Yeah. Well, there's lots of evidence to suggest he was conflicted about that, but he was there because he also needed the money, you know. Of course, yeah. of course, yeah, 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 for sure, <laughs> for sure. Um, well, let's talk there because you mentioned it in terms of 
um, the sound design. I think, you know, the, the, the sound and the music is such a powerful part of the experience. And, you know, before we spoke, you sort of messaged saying, you know, I was thinking about sound. Um, you know, so what, how were you thinking about sound? What did you want it to do uh, in terms of sort of the, the cinematic experience that through the film? Yeah, this is a really good question. I, when I first, like I said, I when I first started to play around with the voiceover, with my own voice and the images, um, in order for it to work, I needed to put lay sound because you know obviously photographs don't have any sound, so you need to just by adding sound, it adds a temporality and a spatial context. So you you get off screen space, you get depth, you get cinematic time by adding sound. Mm. Um, but then, but then, yeah. As I sort of, and once I edited it, I, I have to say, the sound designer, who's also plays a record, who also is a voice actor in the film, um, Payam Hosseinian, he 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 really, when he got on board, it really took the film off. And I think what the aim <clears throat> was was really to um, to kind of. Um, to sort of engage with some of the kind of, on the one hand, the kind of gothic and metaphoric imagery of Dylan Thomas's prose. So there's this kind of using and layering of like hyenas and desert wind and industrial oil machinery. And um, and to, to, the aim was to sort of give a slightly eerie, poetic, at times kind of humorous effect and to really sort of engage with some of the stark contrasts that, Thomas is sort of speaking to and witnessing and what we see in the images. Um, and to, I suppose give a sort of more tactile sort of visuality to um, the colonial encounter, sort of un unmute it, if you like, yeah. the, the images. So that was sort of the aim. And the music in the film is something that I'd encountered before and I'd always wanted to use in a film. It's um, by it's a kind of piece of concrete music by Dariush Dorlad Shahi. So there's two different pieces of music bookending the film. And that kind of... I needed something that spoke to almost the sort of historical wider significance or magnitude of things like oil, you know, the kind of clash between the industrial and the environmental, the um, the kind of modern and the, and the traditional. And because I felt like I didn't want to have a whole thing that spoke that said like, oh, now I'm BP of making billions of pounds and, you know, all the stuff about this contemporary significance. And I thought the music in some ways could somehow evoke that significance through its, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, it's a mixture of electronic sort of um, modern and Persian traditional motifs in it. Mm. As well as use, it uses, it's almost like what sound design has got use of, it uses birds and, and yeah. Yeah, which, yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, kind of brings me to the question of the now, really. You know, I think mm. what's interesting is that it the material that you share was not necessarily buried. You know, like Thomas did a broadcast from his letters. Um, 
the photos themselves, I imagine, and some of the footage was popped up in the film that BP or the Anglo-Iranian oil company eventually made. But it's not it's not a well-known thing, I guess, because the mm. context of that propaganda film, and also to you know Dylan Thomas's kind of audio um, travelogue, um, kind of rooted very much in that moment. But but this film, you know, is released now, you know, and I wondered how you how you thought about, I mean, I think, you know, through the form clearly, but, but you know, um, what resonates for you now in that material in terms of how it's, the film speaks to the current moment, you know, as well as representing that historic period? Yeah, that's a really good question. I suppose it, um, I suppose there's a, there's a more recently, particularly after the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and the death of George Floyd, there's been a bigger focus um, on decolonization and Britain's colonial legacy and so on. And there's also, obviously, with the environmental movement, a lot of focus on the destructive impact of oil companies. And and so, um, yeah, I think to some extent, the film sort of speaks to that context um and places someone who might not be seen in that context i suppose he's there accidentally to some extent but what the film has opened up because the film is just one part of a broader research project and which i'm sort of developing but one of the areas in which i think it opens up potentially or i was hoping to open up and i'm trying to do a bit more work around it it requires a bit more female screenings is, you know, to sort of ask about Wales's role in that history, because um, Britain has always seen not really... So the oil that came from Abadan, the city that um, Dylan Thomas visited, would come 365 days um, a year, every day, would be shipped to South Wales, but not very far from Dylan Thomas's home, um, in, a, in, a, in a place, and... Um, the oil workers lived in a, and it was refined in a place called Clandarsi, which is named after the person who um, got the concession for oil, William Knox Darcy, in Iran. So Wales has this broader oil history that has not really been tapped into. So I think the Dylan Thomas story can maybe open up to, you know, there were Welsh oil workers in Iran. So... I don't think we often see that history from a perspective which connects to, uh, Wales to the yeah. Iran in that same way. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Because I wondered if, yeah, that's uh, something I've felt, I think, watching the film is that there is, you know, that that, that conflict that Thomas has is not just as an individual, mm. um, but it's, it's subtextual. Oh, I'm going to do a shameless plug for my own work, but it, it does have a point. Um, I, I've written a book about music films and mm. um, like documentaries and concert films. And, and there's a focus in the book on the work of uh, uh, Griff Rees and Dylan Gough, who made American Interior and Separado. And what's really interesting about those films is they're about Welsh language, but they're from a position of, you know, a country within a, you know, within Britain that is, you know, engaged in colonial activity like Patagonia or in the case of American interior, like, you know, the, the, um, first nations, uh, territories, 
um, but it's being it's it's colonizing by people who have an experience of being colonized themselves and are engaged in that kind of tension. So mm. really interesting to hear that because I think that's that is an important um, project in terms of in terms of Wales as a place where these tensions are always there you know in the work of raymond williams it's there a lot you know the question yeah. of wales you know what is the question of wales in relation to england but also as a nation itself which goes out into the world yeah and does, does these things you know and you, and, and you kind of see there's an element of that in because you know dylan thomas is not a welsh language uh, writer but he's he's an anglo-welsh border writer and mm. that, that makes sense but he but you can see his disdain for the british um for the british in the film where he's describing um the kind of i suppose what we might call british migrants but would be sometimes termed as expats or kind of um settlers or whatever um and he has a particular and that maybe comes from a kind of his that kind of critique comes from a welshness but yeah, I'm quite interested in the fact that he's caught between these two, that, where Wales fits into the story yeah. and the kind of contradictions there. Well, hopefully that is a project that grows. Um, yeah, and it just—it just, it, it, that is a question which is probably you probably can't answer, but it was a thought that I had, which is like, what what were they thinking would happen when they sent him? You know, is there anything in the archive where they're like, okay, yeah, maybe this wasn't the best choice for someone to go? Well, they—they they, it, it, it was a really ambitious project, and it was it was initially a very different film. I mean, I have to say this is part of two other films that I'm also making on this topic, but um, the initial. The production history is fascinating in its own right, and they initially wanted to make what was called, what might be called a story documentary, a form of docudrama that Dylan Thomas was experienced in writing, you know, where um, it would be, a, you know, it would have a kind of narrative, a scripted, mm. um, and it would, and it was about, it was going to, it was a film that was going to show, it was quite ambitious. Um, and that kind of fell through because of the way the turmoil in Iran was taking place and they had very difficulties like importing equipment and so on. Sorry, I forgot your initial question. Well, it was, it was more, it was just like oh. a sharing of a thought about... Oh, yeah, so I think, yeah. yeah I, I, BP was different from Shell. Obviously, Shell had a film unit, which mm -hmm. had a very important role in British documentary movement, you know, notable filmmakers, Grierson, Arthur Elton were part of the... Shell film unit, but BP sponsored films. It didn't have its own unit. And one of the production companies that it made a lot of films for them was called Green Park, set up by Walter Greenwood, from who wrote Love on the Doll. And they had this kind of literary aspect to them. So one of the films that they made was Cyprus as an Island, a colonial film with Laurie Lee, who wrote Cider with Rosie, as the... And this is a similar project. This was a similar project. Dylan Thomas... Um, so, Cider, uh, sorry, Cyprus is an Island was made by Ralph Keane, who directed the film Persian Story, which Dylan Thomas was attached to. Um, and Ralph Keane knew Dylan Thomas well from working in Strand Films, who made, um, um, who made a, a number of documentaries. So it wasn't an, an unlikely thing for him to be assigned to... A, and he did it in the kind of wartime propaganda films... But I suppose the wartime propaganda films, even though that Dylan Thomas was slightly reluctant to toe the kind of official state 
line or the government line around war. Um, he was driven by a politics of anti-fascism as well. Mm. So that sort of fitted into him with him. This was driven more by the... So I think he was sort of driven by the fact that he had to pay, he had to pay the bills <laughs> and he wasn't a lot of debt. Um, but I think they thought he's a great writer and he'll write this kind of, mm. you know, beautiful piece of poetry um, or... You know, he was a professional. You know, we sort of think of Dylan Thomas as someone who is just a poet, or, like I say, someone who had a colourful lifestyle. But he, he, he was a professional. He did do the job properly. You know, that was part. He was. He had a very strong work ethic. So I think those things came together. Yeah. To to. But it does. It still seems odd. Whenever I say the film is about Dylan Thomas in Iran and he was making a film for BP, um, everyone just goes, "What?" <laughs> Yeah, um, but yeah, but the but one of the things about the film is that it's it, the whole project has it's 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 complex. You know, it's not a mm. sim, it's not a simple thing. You know that there is there are different relationships between Iran and the UK that are a play in that in that agreement, which obviously you know the 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 sort of the the, the resistance and the protest movement is is kind of working against as well um mm. you mentioned um sort of that a contemporary context is a kind of like decolonization mm. you know sort of culture that that has you know has has grown sort of exponentially since black lives matter of which bristol is kind of a uk hub really in terms of the mm. focus of that for 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 a variety of reasons um and you, that's where you're based you work at bristol university who are um you know, a supporter of the film. So I wondered if, if you could just talk about how the film fits into your research, you know, and, you know, at a very kind of, I'm a question that I'm interested in, but our listeners might not be is like, you know, is this a research output that, you know, that, you know, and, 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 and would you consider yourself sort of in the practice research space or is this, you know, and you said, you said the, about a larger project, which I'm interested in terms of what that, what the scope of that might be without details in terms of, you know, a, a series, yeah, a series so, of films. <clears throat> so yeah, I do. I, I I consider myself what you might. I don't really mind the term. Um, I think you know, practice as research or practice research, where film is or filmmaking is both a method and an output of the research. So um, usually, I make uh, the film is usually accompanied by some kind of written publication because I think something that comes out of both and often I feel like there's a lot of research that I can't include in the film that I want to share hmm. in some form of journal article or book chapter um, and that's how I've um, approached um, for listeners who might find will find this boring but the, the research excellent framework where academics have to submit outputs which informs um, which is sort of assessed for its quality every however many years, seven years. and um, Seven or eight years, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and then that informs funding and various decisions, But um, which we're all required to do as academics. Um, yeah, so in the past, my films and... Um, the films and the kind of um, publications have been my submissions or outputs for, for research. Yeah, and I think, you know, film or creative practice research more generally can offer 
um, knowledge outcomes or or give us insights into things that I think would not be possible mm. um, um, if they didn't have that. So I think the sort of Dylan Thomas's colonial encounter in this film and its encounter with the with the use of images and the way it's told has something to say that maybe a journal article alone wouldn't quite offer. Um, so yeah, I see that. And the, just two other films. So basically, one of the things that I found really interesting is the production history of Persian Story, where there are these letters between the film officer of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company with the director of the film. And there's a sort of a, a crisis over whether the film can be made, the original project. So that's a short piece that will accompany this Um uh, and it's mixed with archive. Mm. Um, and another film, it's not a really, a, I suppose it's a film. It's, it's, yeah, we could call it a film. It's an interview with a filmmaker called Ebrahim Golestan. Ebrahim Golestan was a kind of founding figure of Iranian art house cinema. He um, set up a film studio called um, Studio Golestan, which made very notable films like The House is Black. And he produced, which is by a Iranian poet called Farouk Farasad. And he also produced a film called Brick and Mirror, which is, you know, one of the kind of landmarks of Iranian new wave cinema in the 70s. He was in Iran in 1951 and he met Dylan Thomas. And so um, I have an interview with him, which I did in 2017. He sadly passed away at the age of 100 last year in um, Sussex, where he'd been living since 1975. So these three films... Dylan Thomas's encounter with Ebrahim Golestan, the kind of the film Pouring Water Over Troubled Oil, the Dylan Thomas journey, and this other film um, on Persian stories production history are kind of a micro history, I suppose, mm. that um, combined together tell us something about the British Iranian oil encounter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's it, it is interesting, isn't it? In terms of, it's great that that work is seen more and more, or increasingly, as valid research on its own terms. But it also mm -hmm. has that potential to do that very attractive um, work of impact and dissemination outside of, you know. So it's not just in a paywall journal article. It's mm. it's it's it has the potential to be in cinemas, in public spaces, taking that story out on the road, um, which is so vital, you know, particularly when it's such a beautiful film. Yeah, and I think particularly around his history as well, I think a lot of um, general public engage with history through film, through documentaries and through historical fiction. And I think maybe as practices researchers, we have something to offer there when we're making films around historical topics or using archives, that mm. there's um, that it's not just a film. We have kind of academic research that can contribute to that. So how we screen these things and the kind of discussions that might be had after, you know, it could be a kind of panel discussion after, can, can also some, in some ways bridge, not the gap, but, you know, bring academic research into a more... Um, public sphere in a kind of interesting way i think yeah i agree um and the film's got michael sheen like you know 
which obviously oh, yeah. is a big draw. Um, so yeah. it'd be interesting to know like when, when and how he came on board. I mean, again, as much as Dylan Thomas in Iran might be an odd fit, Michael Sheen and Dylan Thomas seems a very obvious fit. Yeah. Um, well, he'd just been desperate to work with me for. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I suppose when I first started it, I thought who's going to read the voice because I was using a guide commentary and it was so important. And the first person who came to mind was, well, actually the first person came to mind was, um, uh, God, I forget his name. (laughs) No, I'll say in a second. Um, but yeah, the first person came to mind was Michael Sheen in a sense because um, um, because he, he, I think even more so than I mean I know Dylan Thomas is notable for being Welsh and but in a way there's a sort of Welsh nationalism that that Michael Sheen brings because I don't know there's a sort of um, that I thought immediately occurred to me but also I knew that he was a big very passionate about Dylan mm. Thomas. And I knew that he 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 is he would be he'd be interested in the political themes, yeah, um, of Iran and oil and so on. And um, you know, he didn't live very far. He was he was from Port Talbot, which was really around the corner from the oil refinery in Khandasi. So he just seemed perfect in terms of all these different reasons. And I knew that he would just do an amazing job as in terms of his delivery. Um, so yeah, the project went on and off for a year. I mean, as with all these stories about recent projects go, COVID disrupted this project and, um, I couldn't get into the archives, you know, it was hard to make the film and that's in that sense. So I got in touch with the, um, with the agent quite early in the project, partly because I was trying to, um, I was trying to use his name <laughs> to get funding, <laughs> um, and he expressed interest from the from the beginning when I sent I sent a script and a very very early rough cut to give an impression of what it would look like, um, and yeah, so he showed interest, and then later on, as as the film progressed towards the end, I I started to really sort of um, say to the agent like this film has got to be finished soon. So I need a date and a time and this is what I'm offering. And, and, um, and yeah, it, it, yeah. So I went to Wales and we recorded it and he was a, a really amazing person to collaborate with. You know, I was a bit nervous in directing him because, you know, <laughs> um, but he was very, very open, very interested in the project. He um, responded really well to what I was asking for. Um, and we didn't take, you know, I, I knew it wouldn't take him very long for us to record. We didn't need much time, maybe a couple of hours it was. But um, we started by trying a few things. And then once we got what we wanted and we thought worked well, we then went with it. And he just, you know, he, he was, yeah, I think he didn't. I think he he understood what was going on. I was trying to get him to sort of not do an impression of Dylan Thomas, but really um, speak to both the sort of personal and public address of the commentary because it's it is a personal and intimate kind of inner piece of mm. 
um, writing, but it's also one that's because it incorporates elements of what he then later included into a radio broadcast on Persian oil as an element of a kind of he's a writer and he's always writing for an audience, even in his letters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a sort of an awareness of, of a wider public. So, um, and that's where he's quite playful with the language um, as well. So, and I think, yeah, Michael Sheen approached it. Um, yeah, did exactly what I wanted and more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, it's just, it's another, it's just another wonderful aspect of, of the film um, that works really beautifully. I think, when when Rod sent it to me, we sort of messaged back and forth, and one of the things that that came out was a kind of just a just an anger on both of our parts, really, that the film has not been seen. You know, that it's not been sort of, it's not it's not in the it's just not out there in a way that it, it feels like it really deserves to. So part of the reason for for this is, you know, not that I have any influence um, at all, but um, well. <laughs> Um, but just just to just to raise awareness that this this thing exists because it's it, it's a great piece of work. I I wondered, you know, how you're feeling about it in terms of the response, but also where where, where are you at with it? Like, where, you know, yeah. when when can it be seen? Um, you know, do you have any plans so, for it, kind of thing? So so it it's premiered in a really great festival called It's All True, set up by a, cura a kind of creator and critic called Amir Labaki, who um, is in Brazil, which is a really it's a, it's, the, it's a kind of one of the best Latin American documentary film festivals. It's academy qualifying, and you know it was it has a in, it has a feature and international uh, and short competition. So the short competition was only eight films. So I was really you know, yeah. excited that it got into there and it had that, I wasn't able to go, but it, um, I got, yeah, so I was quite hopeful then. I've had more of a problem getting into other festivals since, and I don't know, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to answer the reason why, because it's one of the difficulties about festival submissions, as I'm sure you're aware, is you never get any feedback, <laughs> you just get a rejection. <laughs> and um, so you've got no idea if like, I don't know, if it's a bit too long for their programme, if they want more 15 minute films, or if it's to do with the sort of pace. It's a, you know, there is a, depends what kind of film you're into, but I, it, it doesn't start, it starts quite with a sort of, it, it asks of you a little bit in terms of um, pace and, mm. and you know, you, you, I. I also wonder how these things are watched in selection. You know, I, I I do feel like I've made it for the cinema, and I don't know if how much it's been viewed. But I, I just personally, I'm not feeling anything other than wanting it to be seen by an audience, particularly in Wales and the UK, and to have conversations around it. So I was sort of giving the festival submission some time, but now I'm moving towards organising my own screenings this year. And maybe screenings and discussions in collaboration with various curators or um, cinemas, independent cinemas. Yeah. So I'm sending. I mean, part of sending it to Rod was to see where where he could get it. Yeah. <laughs> and getting it to you obviously was a good idea because um, <laughs> I'm here now talking about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think many filmmakers have this problem. I think and um, and. I don't really, I don't, I've gone to a few, I've gone to festivals and so on. I don't think I understand the festival world that much. Mm. I don't, this was, this was a project that um, 
I made on a very low budget and I didn't I don't have a producer or a agent with it and I don't know if that makes a difference and um so yeah I I my only interest really is to show it to an audience to get some discussions going and that's what we all do I suppose we make films hoping that lots of people watch them and then yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, frustrated when they do. Indeed. Indeed. Um well hopefully hopefully that does change um over the next few months. And let us know, um and we'll 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 let people know um as and when through the podcast if you know where it's playing and when. Um but yeah, just th- thank you for the film, thank you for the conversation. Um it's been a real pleasure to yeah, to, to hear you talk about, about the film and um yeah. Thanks very much and, and good luck with it. No, thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm 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 really grateful and I'm really um I'm glad that you your you had a good response to the film and that and just from your questions it's clear that you, 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 you took from from it some of the things that I was hoping would be coming out from it. So yeah. No. I'm grateful to you. Thanks very much, Neil. <laughs> 